today's guest has lived many people's worst nightmare. Your husband fails to return home from work. You put it down to the storm raging outside until you realize that something feels off. No one knows where he is and the police won't treat his disappearance seriously. Days later, with media camped on your doorstep, homicide ring you and tell you they think your husband has been murdered. They have no body. Through their investigation, you find that your husband that you loved and devoted years to has been leading a double life, has indeed been murdered and left you so broke you face homelessness. To make matters worse, as a trained psychologist, you blame yourself for missing the signs. It sounds like a plot of a movie, but it was the reality that today's guest lived through. She now has her own podcast, The Domino Effect of Murder, to assist with other murder survivors and law enforcement in dealing with the fallout and aftermath of a traumatic loss. After you've listened to this episode, you can read the full story in her memoir, A Life Divided. Ladies and gentlemen, Jan Canty. Welcome to One Moment, Please the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success and you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. Thanks for joining us, Jan. Oh, thanks for having me, Fiona. Now, when I heard your story, it is fascinating and terrifying and everything all at all at once so tell us a little bit about um where your journey sort of started in terms of the drama the drama part <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I had a pretty conventional life for the first half of my life and uh mm-hmm. you know strong family life and healthy and good schools and vacations and good neighbors etc and I was married to a man 18 years older than me. He was a psychologist in Detroit, Michigan, in the U.S. And we were married 11 years. And for 10 and a half of those 11 years, he was extremely supportive of my academic ambitions. When I met him, of course, he had his doctorate, and I was just a high school graduate. But he was the first one that really encouraged me to proceed with my education and very enthusiastically. And so I got my bachelor's and my master's and my doctorate. And then when I talked about getting a postdoctoral fellowship, he got a little bit, I don't know, grumpy about it, which was out of character. And what were your qualifications in? I wanted to be both a psychologist and a family therapist licensed in both areas. So you were entering into his world? Yes. Bingo. And I noticed he became preoccupied, but because he was much older than me, I assumed it was his health. And so I kept encouraging him to go to the doctors, which he wouldn't do. And he just seemed withdrawn and and sullen and not happy and um, going through the motions of things. Well, one day in July of 1985, I was watching a three-hour special on television So I kind of lost track of time because it was such a long show. And there was a very bad thunderstorm outside, hail, lightning, thunder, pouring pouring rain. And it distracted me a little bit. And I looked up and I was shocked because it was dark out. And I'm like, well, he's overdue. And this is before cell phones, before the internet, (laughs) in the last century. (laughs) So... I called everywhere, couldn't get anybody. I got my neighbor finally at midnight to drive me down to his office to locate him. And 
he had signed out of the building at 6.30, which was the requirement if you left work after 6. So we knew he'd left, but where was he? And I just attributed it to the storm. And the next day, I reported him missing at the police station, but nothing came of it. So a week went by, and my parents flew in from Phoenix, Arizona, to help me. And they were very extremely helpful. Um, I was inundated with the media, and my dad took charge of the front door and the phone, and my mom took charge of meals, and you know, encouraged me to stay out of the public view and. And because we didn't know what happened. And, and finally, after a week, we were called down or I was called down to the Detroit Police Headquarters Homicide Division. And I met with Detective Marlis Landeros, who played a pivotal role in my sanity at that point, as well as her boss, who was Inspector Gil Hill. And basically, it was very quick. We didn't, they didn't mince words. They basically said they had good reason to believe he'd been murdered, although they did not have his body. And back in those days, you needed a body because the DNA wasn't what it is today. And uh, they they said that he'd been living a double life down in the Cass Corridor, which is like a red light district of Detroit. Not a good area. Not that Detroit was a good area, but this was the worst part of Detroit. And that I was probably broke because he'd been financing, giving out money left and right to this one couple that lived on the cast corner. None of this made sense to me. Um, so another week went by and I got called back down to the headquarters because they had, they, they told me when I walked in that they had located his body and they wanted me at the morgue to identify him. And he'd been buried during that time up in northern Michigan, he'd been dismembered, and he was buried in a bog reserved for roadkill up at the University of Michigan Biologic Station. And they studied research. They did research on mosquitoes, and the way they did that was to deposit roadkill in that particular part of the state. So it's kind of like a perfect place to hide a body. But fortunately, someone who assisted in the burial, he didn't have a hand in the murder itself, but he turned himself in with uh, the understanding that he would get off if he handed over all the evidence. And he did. And, and that's what happened. And had he not done that, I think we would have never found out what happened because I didn't know these people and he was just missing. And so the media really revved it up. And the preliminary examination took place. This was in July. And the preliminary exam took place in, I think, August. My parents were still there, but they didn't have to fly back yet. That was the first time I had laid eyes on the two defendants. And he was a uh, pimp and she was a prostitute. They were both heavily involved in drugs. And I'd shifted at that point in time from being scared to being really angry and my mom totally misread me. She said, don't, don't be scared. Don't get up. Don't be afraid to get up and tell the truth. And I'm like, oh, just give me the witness stand. I was so mad. And I marched right by their defendant's table. And it was very, very crowded in the courtroom, lots of bustle of cameras and reporters. And I remember as I walked by their table, I acted as if I had been um, jostled by one of the people in the aisle. But really, I just jostled myself and I slapped my hand on their defendant table to say, I'm here. 
Good on you. And I got up in front and they would not look at me, which I thought was not surprising in a way, but the guy was huge. I mean, he was ginormous. He looked like he looked like that guy on the Mr. Clean disinfectant bottle, except his hygiene wasn't as good. And she looked uh, preoccupied and uh, it struck me as I was looking over at her when I was on the witness stand that she had a grayish green tone to her skin. And I was thinking, she's got liver failure probably from drugs. That's so immediately what I thought in my mind. And she looked bored by being there. So eventually, uh, the preliminary exam, they were charged, and then uh, December was the trial date. But I wanted nothing to do with it. I didn't want to go. And I said to my parents, I want to come. They'd left and gone back to Arizona by then, but I wanted to spend time with them. And the reason I didn't want to go is, number one, I did not want to be in front of the media anymore. And number two, it wouldn't change anything in my life. I'd still be a widow. I'd still be living in a house I, I couldn't stand. It was his, he bought it and I didn't like it. It was huge and it was hard to sell. Nothing would change. So I didn't want to go and I didn't go. And they were both convicted. Was uh, given the life sentence without the chance of parole, which was at the heaviest sentence he could have been given. And she was got, uh, was given a very light sentence. She was actually out on the streets before I could even sell my house. And so the media just kept it up and kept it up. So a year later, I decided to move. And I did. And I changed my name, changed my job, and didn't look back for 30 years. Didn't talk about it. Nobody knew about it in my new home area. But three things happened within the same week that changed that. I I was at work, and there was a woman missing at work. And people were talking about it, of course, and somebody was coming up to me on occasion and saying, could you imagine having somebody missing in your family, what that would be like? And I'm thinking, oh, I said, no, no, I I can't imagine that. But I'm thinking, of course, I can relate to that. Yeah. I started feeling like I was living a double life. Oh, no. And then the second thing that happened that week was we had a lecture at work by a physician on a topic. I don't recall what it was about, but he made a side comment that people who keep a secret for years and years pay a price physically. And I'm like, ooh, that's important. So that gave me pause. And after that lecture was over, I went back to my office and there were, I had bookshelves in my office and I looked over at this one bookshelf, which is my favorite books that I had, which I still have, that are all written by people who had been in horrendous situations and come out of it okay. All different kinds of circumstances. One was a mother whose uh, house was broken into and dynamite was strapped to her little girl's back. So to make her rob the bank that she was a manager of the next morning. And she stayed up all night for that. Another one was the Chilean miners who were trapped underground for 69 days. So it was all different kinds of people in all different circumstances. And I thought to myself, you know, if they can talk about it, I can talk about it. So I gingerly started talking about it. I, I guess I was expecting people, I don't know, to pass judgment or feel sorry for me, neither of which I wanted. And to my surprise, everybody was wonderful, supportive and uh, encouraging and not nosy and not judgmental. And, and so I started writing the book 
And I got the help of one of the police officers who I'd still been in touch with. I went back to Detroit twice and toured the area, which was rapidly changing. I'm glad I did because a lot of it doesn't exist anymore. It's been torn down. But anyway, I, I, I wrote the book, um, A Life Divided. It took me about six years. I wanted to make it as, sub. on the one hand, I wanted to make it as subjective as I could so that people would feel like they were thinking my thoughts and seeing what I saw and hearing what I heard and so on. But on the other hand, I wanted it to be as accurate as I could make it. So I like, I read 11 pounds of court testimony. I interviewed people. I looked at photographs, microfiche for newspapers. I even interviewed my parents who were still alive at that point. And, and so, and and I edited it and re-edited it, you know, writing goes, and it took about six years, but I finally got it out. And in the meantime, a relative of mine who does crime scene cleanup suggested I have a podcast too. She said, because you know, you're a psychologist, you've been through this and there isn't one like that out there. And and I thought, I don't know a thing about podcasting. I didn't know a pop filter from a microphone, you know, (laughs) but I, I found in short order that Po- other podcasters are extremely helpful. Yeah, generous it's an amazing community, isn't it? It is. It's, it's not. It. Com- yeah, it is. It's it's like its own little world. You know, <laughs> it's interesting because I've come from a world of sales and corporate ops, and where it's you know sales environments, it's highly competitive and KPI yes. driven and bonus driven and. Yeah, so to come to the world of podcasting where everyone's like, yeah, I'll help you out and let me share this tip. And right. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's fabulous, actually. It's so fabulous. So one of the people that interviewed me ended up being quite helpful in getting encouraging me to proceed with it. His name was Javier, uh, and he had a, a podcast on called Pretend, and I was a guest on his show to talk about because my husband in this 18 year 18 months that he was in the cast quarter had a had a double identity and he took on the role of Dr. Miller. So that's why I was interviewed for the podcast Pretend. Anyway, he was very instrumental in helping me launch the podcast and so as you know it's a lot of work. But <laughs> I've enjoyed doing it. And here it we are. Podcast called It's called The Domino Effect of Murder. And, and it, it focuses on families. The, long, the yeah. long-term ramifications of homicide, not just on family, but also first responders, friends, co-workers, and witnesses. I have um, so many questions about your story. And one of the things that I am fascinated about, because it was pre, I mean, you mentioned it was all pre-cell phones and everything, but it was also pre-internet um, transfers of, uh, banks as well in terms of you being able to log in and just being able to transfer money. How did the police find out that he was spending all of your money? Because at the time when they said, we think he's been murdered um, and he's been giving away the money, they said, oh, by the way, go check because we think you're broke, didn't they? Yes, they did. And the reason they felt that way was because some witnesses had come forward and they had sh- they had said that they had seen him with rolls of cash passing it out like candy, that he had paid their rent, he'd bought them cars, he'd bought them drugs. And this had gone on for 18 months and had kept track. And this is, again, in 1985, she, I think it was accurate, she uh, said that it was $150,000, which is over $350,000 today. Wow. And it was also true because when I looked into it, we were behind in everything, the rent, the house payment, the 
IRS taxes, you name it. It was a nightmare, a flippant nightmare. I thought I was going to be homeless. I mean, I, I was so trying to conserve every little penny that I, I didn't. I gave up on lunch and just ate twice a day. I dialed the heat down in the house, even though it was snowing outside. I only drove when it was absolutely necessary, so I wouldn't have to buy gas. I sold almost everything I could own because I had the house on the market. I was trying to sell it, but one of the big problems with selling the house was that in Michigan at the time, and I think it's still true today, there's a clause that says in in real estate law that says if there has been a violent act with the house or the owners, even if it does not occur on the premises, it has to be disclosed to a potential buyer in case they're superstitious and want to back out. Because if you don't tell them, they could back out at any time in the future. They could rescind the the buy. And that devalued the house considerably. So I lost money there too. It's interesting it has to be even if it's not in the house. I understand if it's in the house, but even if it's not in the house, it's... How did the media get onto it so quickly? Because they were camping outside your door before the police even thought there was a a murder. They were. Because initially when I went... I made two trips to try to report him missing. One was the Sunday followed that next morning, and they said it hasn't been 24 hours. They wouldn't really give me the time of day, so basically go home. And so I reported him again at a different precinct, and then um, I called because I, I was just sitting there like this was so out of character for him not to be home. I was so worried about him. I called WJR Radio and asked them to make an announcement over the air on the radio, and they did. And I think that combined with then my mother-in-law, who had connections with the police department, made a phone call to to tell them what, what she knew. I, I hadn't called them yet because I had already reported them at a local precinct. And I think, you know, there's probably somebody on the inside that that tips off the newscast. And and so when I called WJR, I mean, they were at my rate, the, the radio station put the the bulletin out immediately. And I would think it was within an hour and a half that I had reporters at my door and it only got worse and more intrusive to the point where they basically ruined his funeral service. How did they ruin his funeral service as being there and so many, like you were so distracted because it was, so they did not even try to be subtle. Oh, they sad. had vans parked in front with their big satellite dishes. They had big video cameras that they perched on their shoulders. They took notes during the ceremony. They talked among themselves. And it, and it was to the point where I heard another uh, person in attendance turn to them and say, you say, say to one of the reporters, haven't you bastards had enough? Oh, I like it that person just, that did that. <laughs> it was awful. So I ended up leaving early well, that's before they could get their grips on me again. How did you feel, I would imagine, conflicted, but how were you feeling burying someone that you'd been married to for 18 years, had built this life together? I'm assuming it was happy mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. And then burying somebody that you knew had done had done this and had – put you nearly on the street and had lived this double life and was giving away your money and lying. And, and also threatening our my physical health because 
he was having sexual relations with the prostitute who was an IV drug user and HIV was a known threat at that point in time with no treatment whatsoever on the horizon. In 85, yeah, rampant. So I had to go through HIV testing as well. So, you know, he threatened my physical health. He threatened me financially. His actions could have put me in jeopardy had they come to the house. And how I felt about him was, you know, it was through phases. Initially, I kept thinking they got it wrong. He didn't, he's an innocent person. They, they, I just, it just, I couldn't wrap my head around what they were telling me and it didn't make sense. And finally, when it started, when they showed me evidence, and of course, after I went to the morgue, I, I, I kind of started getting it. And I was at that point in time, I, so, so tired, so exhausted because I hadn't slept in weeks, I mean, beyond a Nick Cat nap here and there, that that numbed me a lot. But when that gave way and I finally got some sleep, I got really angry mm-hmm. and stayed angry for a long time, irrationally angry. I mean, I go to the grocery store and I think, why don't they make loaves of bread for one person? <laughs> why don't they have... Um, um, sympathy cards that are that talk about the truth instead of, you know, you're gonna he's gonna be missed and in your thoughts. And I'm thinking, oh, if I only had him here. <laughs> mm. So I was really angry for a long, long time and uh, didn't want to talk about it and and I didn't want to hear anything positive about him from his mother because she tended to whitewash things mm. and I didn't want to hear it. Uh, so, and I didn't, I just thought, you know, nobody understands, nobody gets it. I don't know a single person that's been through this. And so I'm not going to reach out. I'm just going to deal with it the best I can. I mean, like I said, the internet wasn't available. You could, I couldn't look up anything. My physician, you know, could only help me so much. My mentor, uh, through my work was, was helpful. And so was Detective Landeros. But beyond those individuals, I didn't trust anybody, and I was not about to get vulnerable and talk about it to anybody. I was in such survival mode at that point in time. I was so busy putting out fires, trying to get taxes paid, trying to move, trying to take care of my physical health, so on and so forth, that it did not give me any time to reflect for a long time. I would imagine... um Along with that, tra- uh, along with that anger, there would be a lot of trauma, um, particularly if you needed to go to the morgue and identify the um, body. I suppose. Um, did the detective come with you for that? Yes, she did not have to. She did not have to, but she did. Uh, she was very helpful. She met me outside the the chamber and she explained exactly what was going to happen. She explained exactly what I was going to see. She explained why I needed to do this because my dad offered many times, can can I do it for her? Can I do it? And she kept Mm. saying no, because she'll have to testify in court to this. And when we ultimately got inside that chamber, I felt like a marionette because my dad had me under one arm and Detective Landeros had me on the other arm. And when they brought out his head, basically, for me to identify, I couldn't talk. And it's like she said to me, all you have to do is say yes or no. You you can't just nod. You have to say it verbally. And I could Mm. not get the words out. And she was very patient. And she said, let's just start over again. And she said, this will 
remind you that he's and, and assure you he's not coming home again. He's really gone. Mm. And uh, so it wasn't maybe I'm guessing because it was pretty foggy, but I'm thinking we were only there about 15 minutes. And I, I think there were other people in the room, but I, I don't really remember. I know my dad was there and she was there and the medical examiner, and there might have been other people. That's pretty foggy. But I do remember as we left out the front door, there was a bunch of reporters. This was like seven in the morning on a Sunday. And she turned me around and had me go out the back exit and had me lay down in her squad car and go back to the police precinct so they wouldn't harass me. Are you in the same room as his body, or do they have a separate viewing room in the morgue? They had uh, it was like a uh, it was like a window I guess you could say hmm. between me and where his head was and they had it like um, it wrapped as where sh- where his neck would be there was a sheet wrapped around it okay and but you know it was traumatizing pretty visible and really smelled god awful and I talked to corners uh, a corner and he said years ago they did not have the ventilation that they do today. In fact, he said today you probably would not be called upon to do that because DNA has become so advanced. that. Mm. And In fact, I talked to a detective not too long ago, and he made a very important statement. He said, we would not ask you to do that because it would be called a bad identification. And I asked him what he meant by that. And he said he was so disfigured that he didn't look like himself and the defense counsel could bring that point up, even though it's kind of a moot point. They they could they could make that argument that how do you know it's him? It didn't look like him, which is true. So and he says plus the trauma. He says we would not put you through that today, but mm. it was back in eighty five. You know. Well, uh, yes, but it is good to know in terms of silver lining that they wouldn't do that today because that's no. so tra- I would imagine so traumatic. Yeah, it was. How did how did it all start? Did you ever find out how he ended up going down this route of the double life? Like how he got mixed up with this prostitute and pimp? Well, there was a time in November of 84, I think it was 84, when I got sick and I had mono and it was not getting better. It was getting worse and I'd had it for quite a few months. And this is when I was in my postdoctoral fellowship. And my physician said, look, you're not getting better. You're getting worse. You either have to go to the hospital or go to a dry, sunny, warm place and rest. And I knew he was talking about my parents' house because he knew my parents. And I said, that that's not too terrible to do in November. I could leave the snow and go to the nice, warm desert. So I, I, I you know, and Al bought me a ticket. So I went there and I, with an open-ended return date, because I didn't know how long it was going to take to feel better. So I got there, and all I did was sleep for like a week. I mean, I wasn't hungry at all. I was very thirsty. I wanted ice-cold drinks, but that was about it. And I slept and slept and slept. And that, in my absence, he turned 50, and his mother gave him a $500 gift uh, in cash for him for his birthday. And he promptly took it down to the cash corridor and saw her on a street corner and propositioned her. And they made a date for the later that night, and he went on to work, and then he met her afterwards. And from what she said in her court testimony, from then on, he he was with her a minimum of three times a week. Sometimes it was daily, oh giving her goodness. money every time. 
and buying drugs and paying rent. And <clears throat> I, I know you said that you were really angry um, in the court, but how do you sit there or how did you sit there and respect, I don't know, maybe you didn't, respect the court proceedings and not have outbursts when you're hearing this testimony and you're so goddamn angry. I didn't hear any testimony because as a witness, you're not allowed to hear any testimony. You're oh. kept out, outside and you're brought in only when you're called. After your testimony, you can remain if you want to, but not until you've testified. They don't want mm-hmm. you changing your story, I think is the reasoning behind that. Mm. The other thing that helped was, bless her heart, I, Detective Landeros, I, I kept looking at her. And she was like, at that moment in time, she was like an orchestra conductor to me. She was like, calm down. You know, I, I could see her hands, <laughs> to be calm, take a breath. I could just tell by her gestures, that's what she was telling me. And she kept me pretty together throughout the whole thing. And I, as I said, I was very tired. So that worked against being overtly angry as well. And I was only on the witness stand for maybe... 10, 15 minutes. And when it came time for the cross-examination with the defense counsel, he stipulated to my testimony to get me out of there ASAP. He didn't want to ask me anything. I just think he just didn't want me in the courtroom. Are you still in contact with that detective? Uh, no, I'm not. Uh, she died on Christmas. Oh. And I was notified by her daughter that um we knew it was going to happen because uh, a few years back she was in a terrible car wreck and had brain damage. And I, I, I still wanted to, to see her again. And her daughter brought, and I, when I was visiting Detroit, and her daughter, who's a social worker who looked just like her mom, she made her uh, look pretty. And we met at a restaurant. And of course, she had no knowledge of who I was. She didn't, you know, she was brain damaged, but it was still good to see her. And I still kept in contact with her daughter. So when Detective Landeros did finally die, uh, which they said she would, but she was going to have a mini strokes and it would take a hold. And it did. Um, she had me uh, do the eulogy. That's a sad end for a remarkable person. Oh, she was a remarkable person. Yeah, She was the first woman of color in the Detroit Police Department in any position of authority. Good on her. That would have taken, back then, 85, that would have taken a lot of balls, really. It still does. I had a long conversation. Last time I was in Detroit, I had a long conversation with a, a man in the parking lot of the car rental place whose daughter was a police lieutenant in the Detroit police force. Mm. And he was telling, and this is like last year, and he was telling me what an uphill battle she still fights mm. because she's female primarily and secondly because she's black. So I can't imagine how rough it was for her in 85 to do yeah. it. But she was sharp as, as she could be and very, with me, very professional yet compassionate. Mm. But when I read her court testimony and her 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 interviews of the perpetrators, she had a whole other side to her that I had never <laughs> seen. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> which I guess that's what it would take to be successful, you know? Yeah, and also to there is would have been a level of intimidation for them to speak and and get to the truth as well. So yeah, I, I not just a surprise me that she's got that other side of her, but uh, but good on her. Jeez, I tell you what. Hard yakka, those in well, now you said even now doing that, even now, mm. right? You said that you 
read the book, um, one of your lecturers actually made the comment in regards to people that hold the secret, it causes physical damage. And you, you mentioned that that statement resonated with you. What did you recognise in yourself that was being damaged by you holding this secret? I was more worried about what the potential was. I was working out a lot at the gym in preparation for doing triathlons, and I was very tired, but I thought it was preparation for the triathlons because I was mm. working out all the time. And it turns out I had cancer, but I didn't know it. Oh, goodness. It's uh, called multiple myeloma, and it, it's a cancer of the blood. And so it, any it, what it does is it destroys your bones. So any place you have blood near bone, it, whether it's your cranium or your leg or your back, can will can be damaged. And so, but I didn't know that at the time because there's it's called smoldering multiple myeloma before you are diagnosed because it's typically a very slow growing cancer. And it's pretty rare, so it's not the first thing people jump to because the symptoms are fatigue and backache. Well, who in their 50s training for triathlons isn't tired with a backache, mm. you know? Mm. So I dismissed it. I didn't think anything of it. And then uh, a few years later, I broke my arm in training to do another triathlon. I was climbing a soft, muddy hill and fell. I slipped on a muddy mess and broke my right arm and... I just thought I broke my arm, but it turns out it was because there was hardly any bone left in there. So when I fell and hit it hard, it broke it completely. And so I here I go from training to be in a triathlon 24 hours later with a diagnosis of cancer and a titanium rod in my arm. And uh, that was just the beginning. I went through the usual chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, and then a stem cell transplant after that. And I'm doing pretty good. That's good. Yeah. I see he you're doing well. Hearing that um, the detectives say we think he's been murdered and going through the process of the body identification, at what point do you come to the realisation that, that that W word applies to you, which is widow? When I was at the morgue. Mm. But I still didn't grasp. I still thought he was innocent. I still thought they got it wrong. I, I couldn't wrap my head around him willfully putting himself and second, then thereby implicating me too into danger. I just, because it's such a bizarre thing. I mean, a double life. I, I had led such a conventional life up to that point in time. This was like from out, uh, out of the blue. And I just couldn't easily flip over and think, oh, yeah, that sounds like something he'd do. No, it wasn't like that at all. He was a very much a homebody. You know, he he didn't have a wide circle of friends. He didn't drink heavily. He didn't gamble. He was at work all the time, or so I thought. Mm -hmm. um, and then come to find out when I was doing research for my book and I was talking with his high school friends from years ago, come to find out he'd never been faithful to anybody. This wow. was a pattern of his. Moreover, the women that he got involved with were always younger, always had brown hair parted in the middle, always had less education than him. And he liked to be the authority or uh, big daddy, you know, kind of helping them through and bringing them along. And I fit the bill. Until you got more education. 
that until I surpassed because he didn't have a postdoctoral fellowship. So I ended up getting more education than him, which is probably why he didn't want me to get the postdoc. And then it turns out that the Dawn, the, the prostitute he was involved with, was younger, high school educated, brown hair parted in the middle, and without resources. So it was a real ongoing pattern. Did you find out that he had been unfaithful to you prior to this? Oh, no. Mm-mm. No. This wasn't until maybe, oh, 25, 30 years later when I was researching for the book. Really? Okay. What made you – I know that the you said that you looked on your shelf and there was all these books from people that had overcome adversity and tragedy. And there was that comment in terms of the the lecturer. What made you actually write a book about it? Because you could have just come out to your friends and family and said, "Okay, this is this is what I've previously dealt with. This is my prior, you know, prior life." What because made you what so I wanted public? to do, I wanted, I, I, I kept saying to myself, "I don't want to go through this for nothing. I want mm. something positive to come out of all this. I wanted to make uh, lemonade out of lemons, you know." So I thought. There are books out there written by people who have been touched by homicide of someone close to them, Mm. but they're not trained in behavioral health, Mm. behavioral science. And there are experts out there trained in social sciences who write books about homicide and grief who've never been through it Mm. personally. It's based on research. And I'm in a unique position of having a foot in both worlds and to to the best of my knowledge, I haven't seen a book written by someone who has both the life experience and the educational background to write such a book. And I thought, if I can pull those two together, maybe I can help somebody else go through this because there are so still so few resources out there for people to turn to. And I wanted to dispel some of the crazy myths and stereotypes that are still around about people who what were called as homicide survivors in the United States. And I found out that's in Australia, too. Mm -hmm. That's the same term. And uh, I found out also that Australia has way more in the way of support services than the United States does. Well, that's good. I didn't I've never been touched by this situation, so I, I yeah, it's had no not idea hard to, to hook up with that and just research it on the internet. So I thought maybe I could uh, write a book that would educate people on the experience and write it in such a way that it could be applicable to other people who are going through the same situation in their life. So I talk about things, for example, like PTSD. Mm. talk about depression. I talk about post-traumatic growth. I talk about the death notification. I talk about the importance of uh, interfacing with other people that have been through this together. And and, and I, I really want, hopefully, that, hopefully somebody will take that information to heart and benefit by it. That was my goal. You're actually also lecturing for police forces, aren't you? Yes. Well, uh, yeah, I had... Um, invitation to speak at the IAI, which is the International Association of Identification. And it's a law, it's primarily law, it could be FBI, CIA, sheriffs, police, lab techs, 
anybody involved with identification of bodies goes there. Mm -hmm. And I was a speaker there. And the day I spoke, there was 38 people, I mean, sorry, 38 countries represented in the room I spoke at. A lot of people know English, I guess, <laughs> but that's what they wrote down, that they were from different countries. A lot of people from Germany. But anyway, um, yeah, I spoke with them and, and I, I wanted to dispel this idea that it's them and us, that they're the investigators and we're the victims and there's no um, overlap in our experiences. And so what I did is I talked about five ways that our experiences with violent death overlap like one being the the impact of the media on us that mm. for them if they have a drone flying over their head at a murder scene it's certainly going to affect what they're doing their ability to concentrate and the media certainly affected my life mm. another is the importance of collaboration you know they need their colleagues they rely on lab techs and others um so i i talked about five different ways that our lives are similar as a way of trying to discourage this them and us thinking. And it, it seemed to resonate with them. Do you still do that now? Yes. You do? I have a podcast interview coming up in a week. Uh, I've been asked to speak on a podcast for police officers. Is that an Australian podcast? I don't think so. I'll have to put you in touch with um, Narelle Fraser, who I interviewed, and she's an ex-homicide um, and she was in the sexual assault unit as well and she's absolutely incredible um i interviewed her on the on the podcast and it was so fascinating to pick her brain and she's an absolute gem so i think it would be a really good conversation for the two of you to ha to have um if you both want to and i can yes. put you in, in touch That'd with be her wonderful. Yeah, thank she, you she's terrific so where are you at now in terms of everything i know you had to change your name um because one of the per perpetrators um, is out of prison. Um, so you, you feel that there's a security threat there? I feel there's a security threat with son. Okay. Son, who's also named has threatened me for writing the book. Right. What's his, what's his concerns with the book being written? Because it's factual, isn't it? It is. I, yeah. I, yeah, it doesn't make sense to me because like I, it is factual and – he wasn't raised by him. He never, never took care of his children. He mm. never married their mothers. He was just there and gone. So perhaps it's because they have the same name. It's the only thing I can think of. Do you find um, yourself looking over your shoulder? Like, are you in that state of perpetual awareness? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I would say it's not when I'm in my home and it's not with, yeah. when I'm with my friends, but I'm very, very careful on the internet. Mm. And I, you know, I'm, I think it's probably one of the reasons I like to have big dogs mm. with me. I have five dogs and three of them alone weigh over 300 pounds. Good. <laughs> I have two St. Bernards and a Coonhound and two little ones. So, I mean, and I live in a very rural area too. And I don't think that's a, that's a coincidence. Mm. Mm. That in itself would be very taxing. That level it's of. It can be tiring. Yeah. I think what's harder though than that is when people don't get it. Like 
my husband tries, bless his heart, because I remarried. But he, like, we in our other house before we moved to this house, we I had hired a landscaper to trim our bushes, which there was like our lot line had the bushes, and then there was a jogging path, and then our neighbor's house. Mm. So like the jogging path went between my house and my neighbor's house, not a road, but a jogging path. And I hired her to trim the bushes because they were all over the place. And I explained what I wanted. I went to work. I came home and all that was left was the trunk of trees. They were gone. I felt so exposed. I panicked. Mm. And I told my husband, we need a fence in there today. And he goes, well, we can't get one in today. Why is this such a big deal? And I I didn't even want to explain it. But, it, but people who've been through trauma really have an inordinate need for control over their boundaries, their privacy. They want to set the limits as to who comes and who goes into their house, who has uh, access to their private information. That doesn't change. And he's never been through that. So I think, you know, he, he certainly complied with me and said, okay, okay, we'll get one. And we'll, it took about a week or two to get it done. But I don't think he really understood at an emotional level. It was more like, okay, we'll do it, whatever. Jen's, That's Jen's the being crazy. Part. Let's just go with it. That's right. And <laughs> yeah. it doesn't come up often, but once in a while, it will just hit me like that. Mm. And I, or if I, if I, if he goes to bed before I do, and then I check the house before I go to bed, and the front door has been unlocked for hours and hours. That happens probably twice a week. Right. And even though we're in a rural area, and even though I have big dogs, I don't like that. You know. Yeah. So do you go wake I, him up and yell at him? <laughs> no, he's so sweet. And he'll remind me, and it's true, our biggest threat where we are is cougars. It's not people. And it's true. Wildlife is a bigger threat where we are. Where mm. we are. It, but it's still, if you've been through that, though, it's still worrying to have that feeling of, oh, good, I was vulnerable. It's that feeling of vulnerability. Right. Mm. And we were commuting for a while before he retired, and... Uh, so there were many nights I was there at the house by myself because he would we'd be together on Fridays through Monday morning. And so like during the week, I was there by myself while we were commuting. And there was a couple times where I would thought I'd heard something, you know, at night. And he had the dogs that night. And I'm, I could not get back to sleep. And I was kind of scared to go outside because of the cougars. <laughs> so all I did was sit there with a flashlight in my house, you know. It doesn't leave you completely, not completely. Well, I mean, I, I, I don't think it, I can imagine a situation where it would. No. But it doesn't mean it dominates your life and it doesn't mean that you can't be happy again. It doesn't mean that you're snapping at people all the time. It doesn't mean any of that. It's just this tap on the shoulder once in a while. It's like, oh, it's that. That's why I feel this way, you know. Okay. And uh, I understand it. And mm. if I have nightmares, I understand it. And I just, you know, it's all part of it. And the way I look at it is that, you know, the worst possible outcome did not happen. I was never homeless. I never got HIV. I wasn't killed in the process. I survived. Um, I had people believe in me. I had resources. And one of the things that really put this all in perspective for me was I was teaching a graduate course for years in cross-cultural psychotherapy. And I thought, if I'm going to do a good job teaching cross-cultural therapy, I better travel cross-culturally so I can bring it home and, and talk about it from personal experience. So I would go to really far-flung places like in 
Africa and India, I mean, off the beaten track without mm. clear, clean water and electricity. And it really opened my eyes. I, I thought, you know, I had a roof over my head. I had the law behind me. I had my education, my health, at least till recently. And so I don't have anything to complain about. What I saw was just so jarring to me how particularly women and children mm-hmm. are tr- and dogs are treated in other countries that are just beyond my comprehension. It certainly put things in pers- into perspective when you travel and you see yep. what other people have to go through. Yeah, yeah. what you take for granted. You yeah. turn on the water and there it is, clean water. Yeah, And they couldn't comprehend the fact that we flushed clean water down the sink and down the toilet. I mean, mm. they don't, I'll never forget one of the statistics I came home with was that we've one flush of the toilet is more clean water than they'll get an entire day if they're lucky. That doesn't surprise me. And How we, did- we, use, we use a hose to wash our cars and that's clean water, mm. you know? How did you move from um, this ultimate, Betrayal, and it was—I would call it an ultimate betrayal in terms of your husband leaving, living a double life, and uh, putting your health and well-being and finances at, at risk. How did you move from that to I'm going to trust again and be in another relationship? Well, I—I I always was very conscious of the idea that I can't have baggage from relationship A and put it on relationship B. I judge people by how they treat me, how they treat me. baggage and baggage, though, Jen. Like, <laughs> like. If anything, the only carryover I could put my finger on is I would worry if he was two minutes late. I'd, mm. I'd be, like, freaking out when we were dating, I'm talking about. Mm. Um, beyond that, uh, and I waited a long time, a long time to date. I mean, mm. decades. Mm. I did not date for a long time, long time. I instead what I did is I adopted two special needs children mm-hmm. whose mother was murdered oh, and goodness. whose father was incarcerated at the time of her murder so he was not implicated but they were essentially orphaned and I adopted both of them and that was my focus for a long time and I became very protective of them mm. and that was another reason I didn't date for a long time mm. because I wasn't going to have anybody hurt them ever I became like this mother lioness, you know. They still laugh about it now that they're adults. You know, they'll say, I know how you were at the mall, mom. You'd glare at guys that looked at us. I'm thinking, hell yeah, I will. I'll give them the evil lion a heartbeat. Were they female, the old children? Yeah. Yeah. So they're very pretty girls, and I can't claim anything to do with that, but they're they're really gorgeous. Their, their mom was Swedish, and their mm-hmm. father was um, black. And they kind of look like Eastern Indians, sort of. And they're both striking. Yeah, beautiful. And I wish that when they were teenagers, they weren't so pretty, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but I was very, very protective of them, very protective. And uh, I, I was always the mom that everybody would dump their kids off at my house because I wanted to know who they were hanging out with. Yeah. And the thing that I found most amazing is whenever I dro- drove these kids around to someplace, they're all in the back. Uh, of my car, the things that they would talk about, like I'm deaf because I'm driving, you know, <laughs> and that's how I kept tabs on what they were doing. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it, the, the, my ability to trust other people, um, it was, 
a time. It was time because I had not trusted in so long. And I, I didn't want to date. And, and finally, I thought, you know, there's got to be more to my life than having a job and raising kids. And that's all I do all the time. Hmm. And so I was introduced to, to my husband. And he was very reserved. He was career military. And uh, not he was very gentlemanly. Mm. But I remember after our first date feeling like I didn't know him at all, like I didn't have a sense of him at all. But he was so polite and so, you know, that I was impressed with that he had good manners. And so I went out a second time and uh, and he told me about the struggle he had with being in the military. This is back in uh, Clinton's when Clinton was president, that no, don't ask, don't tell policy. And his brother died of AIDS. He was gay. And what a struggle that was for him as an officer to have to implement a policy he didn't believe in. He says, because mm. I don't care if you're gay or straight or black or white or male or female. All I care about is you're a good soldier, mm. period. But it wasn't the policy at the time. And that really impressed me, you know, that he give, had given it a lot of thought and that, that it did bother him. And that aligned with my thoughts on the topic, too. So, you know, but I did not tell him about Al's murder for a long time. That was going to be my next question. At what point? Is that your first date conversation? Oh, by the way, my previous. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> it was months and months, months how did he later. T- how did, a, how did you broach it with him? And B, how did he take it? Well, he asked me, have you ever been married before? And I said, we'll talk about that later. And he goes, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he approached it, brought it up again. Uh, you know, a couple months ago, I asked you and you said, and I said, well, this is all I'm going to say at this point is, yes, I was married before and he died and I don't want to get into it. Okay. Okay. So he's thinking at that stage, I'm dating a widow, uh, a widow or a murderer. <laughs> <laughs> I th- well, m- most people, when I tell them my husband died, they assume it was a car wreck or a heart oh, attack. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so before we got married, I said, "I want you have to know what happened. And so he listened and he listened and and he was very nice, and he said, I can't believe anybody would do that to you. He said, what would make him do that to you? I said, I don't know. And he he said, you know, well, that was a long time ago. And he said, uh, you know, if you want to talk about it, fine. If you don't, that's fine, because it was a long time ago, and it's you and me now from this day forward. And that's how oh. we treated it. And then he knew, of course, I was writing the book, and that's the first time he got all the details. So it was, you know, we've been married 16 years. And so it was only two years ago that he really got all the details. And he got so angry, not at me, but at the situation, you mm. know. And he'll talk about it, but he doesn't bring it up. But if I want to, he will. How did you, from what you just said, that was in, when you were engaged um, that you told him before you got married, Right. How are you explaining the behavior, though, of being concerned if he was a couple minutes late or the front door? And like, how are you explaining that? I don't think he aspect? knew. Okay. I don't think he was aware of it. It was something I just had stomach and knots kind of thing. That's interesting that you never shared that aspect of it with him. To, to I help. didn't want to seem like a frightened, scared female. Crazy person, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do you think that your um, psychology education helped or hindered you in the recovery process? I think it was both. 
I think on the one hand, it hindered me because I should have seen this coming and I beat my, I, um, I tended to beat myself up about how could I have been so blind? How could I have not, you know, been prepared or what did I miss uh, kind of thing. And also because as a profession, you're supposed to be professional, which means you have mm-hmm. it together, which means you you don't have outbursts and you don't dissolve into panic attacks. You keep it together and you stay mm. strong. So that's the negative side. And the flip side of it, I understood and anticipated pretty correctly what the phases of, of quote, recovery would look like, you know, that I would go through insomnia and weight loss and nightmares and all that would come with it. I, I expected it. So when it happened, it didn't frighten me. It was like, yeah, well, here we are. And uh, I knew that grief, you know, is unique to people, but there's some particular things that are common, like fatigue and sadness and mourning. And 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 so it was a good thing and a bad thing in some ways. I, I th- And socially, I think people felt, especially people who did not know me real well, felt like they could take more liberties in talking about it with me than they should have. Like, you know, well, you're strong. You can handle anything I say to you. Because I remember one guy who was a he was, I went next door for my neighbor's house for a barbecue. And uh, this was before the the house was sold. It was in the following spring. And there were guests there. I don't remember the guy. I'd never met the guy before, but he knew who I was. And he said, yeah, I heard it was a home run because he, he got beaten to, get to death with a baseball bat. That's what that was referring to. Oh, my goodness. And I'm like, that's not funny. You don't say that. But I'm finding since I had my podcast that it's not unusual. I had a, for people to be inappropriate. I had a guest on whose old, slightly older brother was in Phoenix, Arizona, was killed with a gun for his car. It was a robbery for the guy's car. And she had an old high school acquaintance call her, who should, not somebody she knew well, but they both went to high school together, call her to ask her how many bullets were in his body. <gasps> No. Yeah. I mean, so I'm not, It's and that's been a, a real edifying for me to have this podcast because I'm finding out that things that I thought were unique to my situation are not. And I must say at this point, you did say, ask me anything, be, uh, yeah, don't handle you with kid gloves. <laughs> say again? You did say, don't handle me with kid gloves in terms of the questions and everything oh. for today's episode, didn't you? <laughs> That's <laughs> when I put that out there. I did get permission to ask these questions. Yes, yes, you did. You did. No, I don't. If Now, let me say, if it was 10 or 15 years ago, I could not have been as blunt as I am today. Yeah. It's a process. And that's also one of the reasons I waited so long to write that book. I could not have done it 10, 15 years ago. It, I would have been too raw, and I would not have had the perspective that I needed to write it. Mm. And I did not want to use it for catharsis because that is not fair to the reader. Well, that's interesting. I was going to ask you that exact question. Was it cathartic? No, because I knew I'd processed it and processed it and read everything and talked about it so much that it was getting old. And Mm. then I sat down to write about it. So nothing surprised me. Because uh, I, I gathered all the data I needed and talked about it with, you know, police and my parents. And I, I'd gone over it a multitude of times. And so I wanted to have it, uh, the timeline down, the, my, my, my reactions in place. 
and to un- and be able to understand it enough to communicate to other people how it unfolded and what I took away from it. And I could not have done that if it was too soon afterwards. Have your kids read the book? Yes, they have. Did they know any of this before, while they were growing up? In very, very <clears throat> general terms, not until they were teenagers. Hmm. What was there? You mentioned that your husband was angry that someone could do this to you. What were your kids' response? Both of them individually at separate times said how proud they were of me Yeah. and how strong I was. Mm. And they said, you know, we knew that anyway because, you know, you're our mom. We know you, but. And then when uh, Detective Landeros died and I went back to her funeral, my one daughter said to me, that was so sweet. She said, you you can't go through that by yourself, mom. I'm going to go with you. I want to go with you to Detroit. And she'd never been to Detroit. And uh, I think it was an eye opener to see her, to have her see me in my hometown because that night in the one night in the hotel when we were getting ready to leave, she said, you know, I understand you better having seen you in the city. She says, I understand how how street smart you have to be and how assertive you have to be. I didn't understood understand that before because in places we've lived, it wasn't necessary for survival. But when you're living in an urban area, it is. You know, you'd better be able to handle yourself because there's nobody coming to rescue you. Detroit's from, and I've never been, I've never been to the States, but Detroit gets depicted a lot as a fairly rough um, city. Is that the case? It's a a fairly rough city. It's improving. Mm. At the time this all happened, we had the highest homicide rate in the United States. And that year that Al was murdered, we had 790 homicides. And those were just the ones that they knew about. According to the police that I talked with, they actually felt it was probably closer to about 900. Wow. That's a lot. And I had lived down there, too. When I was a student as an undergrad before I married, I rented a a, a one-room walk-up apartment, a studio apartment near Wayne State University where I did my undergraduate, which was right in that area. And I would always try to get in before dark because after dark you could hear machine guns, automatic assault weapons, and and uh, screaming. Oh, and I, I never had my name on the directory by the front door. I never went near the windows. I had my mattress on the floor away from the windows in case bullets came through. Oh my goodness! Just... There were rats in the hallway. Wow. Um, I sold my car because I figured it would just get stolen anyway so yeah. that I could use the money for bus fare. But there were a few nights I did not get back to my apartment because it gets dark early in the winter in Detroit, like around 4.30. And there was a couple, maybe a dozen times where I did not get home to my apartment before dark. And it was nerve wracking. And so what I did is I dressed like a male. I had a big oversized hoodie with a uh, fur, like it was in the winter, with a with a fur collar like on the hood and I had like leather combat boots on and I did not have a purse. I did not wear makeup. And I, I just try. And I remember this one night I was so scared because the um, snow was so heavy that night and class had let out. It was four o'clock and it was starting to get dark and the snow was so heavy. The buses couldn't make it through the streets. So I had to walk. It was three miles and it's through some of the worst areas of the city and I just, I didn't know if I was going to get back, but I did. 
um, particularly this one stretch, it went under Baltimore Avenue. It was a, Baltimore Avenue was um, a tunnel-like, and I had to walk underneath the railroad tracks in this tunnel. I did not like it, but I had to mm. do it. There was no other way to get there. And I couldn't afford a taxi. I probably wouldn't even know how to do that. I was so young at that point. But, you know, I just thought, you know, these are just part of the dues you pay if you really want to get an education because my parents were not going to give me a dime for my education. I had to figure it out myself. Mm. I think that's one of the things that we've, we do have that's good in Australia is that we don't have the level of student debt that you guys have over oh. there. So what happens in you can either pay up front or you basically get a loan off the government and once you start earning after your um, degree, once you start earning a certain amount, they take a percentage out of your paycheck. But it's like it didn't take me all that long to pay it off from oh, my degree wow. um, and it's certainly not as much as what I think I came out. It was, I don't even know, like 15000 or or 25000 or something. Mm-hmm. It. It probably wasn't even that much. But when I hear of these hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of student debt over in America, we certainly don't have that. My parents didn't want me to be in debt like that. And also, remember, back in the 80s, women were not encouraged to go to college. So Mm. that was another factor. You know, my parents were pretty old school, and they'd say, you know, you don't need a college education to work. And so you can get a job without one. So if you want to go to college, that's that's on you. But go for it. Mm. But you can be a waitress or a secretary or a nanny or a go in the service or the Peace Corps. I mean, there's other options out there. What's what's on the um, horizon for you now, Jan? You've got you've written the book. Yep. What's the plans now? Oh, I have a bucket list. You know, because um, <laughs> even the before I, um, the the main thing on my bucket list is I want to make every continent. And and COVID shut that down. Yeah, I, I'd like to do that. Uh, I I want to travel more. Yeah, uh, I would love to be. I can't make this happen, but I would love to have my family closer to me. They're they're in the midst of their finding their lives and careers, and they're not near me except for one daughter. Um, so I'll visit them. I'm creating this master garden that I absolutely love. Uh, I'm trying to emulate the beauty that I saw in. Um, Antigua in mm-hmm. Guatemala, and I had the house redone to make it look more uh, more of that kind of era. Um, I I would love to do more public speaking. I want I want to connect with more homicide survivors, mm-hmm. and I don't know the steps involved, but my ultimate thrill would be if we could have an international symposium for homicide survivors like we did with AIDS. That's how we made gains with the intervention against HIV, is there was an international symposium. And you cut through a lot of red tape that way. And I would love to have something like that, but I don't have all the tools to do that. And and so I do what I can more locally. And like your podcast being international for me, mm-hmm. that's helpful. You might need to do a, a speaking tour and and – uh, tie in those every continent dream. Um, oh, that be cool. with that. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> oh, kill two birds with one stone exactly. kind of thing. Just allow yeah. a month at the end of every speaking engagement to, right, to travel that. Right. Where about some, what, what continents have you been to and what ones have you got I've to go? never been to Australia, but I have been to New Zealand. Okay, that's different. 
That's different. Um, and I've never <laughs> been to count. South America. Yeah. Um, but I've been everywhere else. We'll make sure when you come to Australia, you uh, reach out and I'll take you for a glass of, I don't know if you drink, but I'll take you for a glass of wine or a coffee or I would love that. something when you, when you, you are near Melbourne, am I right? I'm in Melbourne. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I can, um, I don't know how much of a tour guide I'll be, but I'm happy to be a tour guide for you. And, <laughs> Thank uh, you. but you'll need to allow for, it's such a big, a big country like the States and it's so different where you go. You'll need to allow a fair bit of, a fair bit of time. So, um, so yeah. Have you, you done? more Sorry. traffic or what do you mean <clears throat> no it's just so so large um and so it's a very different culture being in melbourne than it would be up in the northern oh. um uh northern australia okay uh, so cairns or queensland it's more laid back up there um huh. sunnier i mean we have sun down here but it's a different climate because it's tropical up there so it's a different it's a huge lifestyle continent. yeah yeah whereas down here we're more um we have the winters and we have not not like Michigan cold. We don't get the snow. <laughs> <laughs> but it's cold for, for us, you know. Yeah. So it's usually around um I don't know, forty degrees Celsius in the uh in the summer and about I don't know, four degrees in the in the winter. Um but up in Queensland you probably get down to I don't know, twenty degrees Celsius in the winter. <laughs> I see. It's very difficult. It's tropical up there. So, yeah. And then over in the west, it's very different again. So I see. you'll need to um, rent a Winnebago or something. To generalize from Melbourne to all of the con- continent. No, but also allow the time. So rent a Winnebago and go for the drive or something so you get to, get That'd to be see That'd be wild. It. So, yeah. 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 I'd like to see a kangaroo. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's plenty of those. Here we- <laughs> you probably see them on the side of the road. <laughs> I've seen them in a zoo. That was it. <laughs> They don't have kangaroos in Detroit. <laughs> we well, have other kinds of beasts there, but not kangaroos. <laughs> it is ironic, though, that we do eat a national emblem because, um, yeah, the, the kangaroos and emus we both have for meat. But they're, well, pre-bushfires, they were very prevalent and, um, you know, not the farmer's friends, but post-bushfires oh. that we had, I don't know how much their recovery is and, uh yeah. So anyway, yeah. that's just a downer at the end of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Jan, it's been lovely speaking with you. Oh, um, thank you for having me. Please plug your, plug your um, podcast and book again. And uh, yeah. The book is entitled A Life Divided and it's on Amazon. I, I went back to Detroit last fall and did the audio version. So it's now print, Kindle and audio. Perfect. A man uh, who's an audio engineer in Detroit volunteered to do it for me. Oh, that's, that's the only awesome. way I could have done it. It's thousands of dollars if you have to pay for it outright. Yeah. And so I went back and just did it, and it was it was exhausting and and dehydrating. I didn't realize that <laughs> till I had well, gone through it. But uh, so that's the book, uh, Life Divided, and then uh, the podcast is a domino effect of murder, and it's sponsored by the Mental Health News Radio Network. And it's heard in 10 countries, one of them being Australia. Perfect. Well, Jan, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for uh, coming on. And, uh, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll link everything in the show notes, everybody, for, um, for Jan's podcast and her book. 
Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 